Well, good morning again. It's good to see everybody. Uh, I think it's going to be spring eventually. That's the rumor that I heard uh, somewhere along the way. Maybe we'll get like one week of spring right before summer begins, something like that. But I hope everybody had a nice Easter. I hope you had a fun time with your family. Uh, we certainly had a fun time uh, visiting with ours, a nice trip up to northeast Pennsylvania, and then we made our way back. And uh, for the past few weeks, we took a little bit of a break from our series looking through the book of Jeremiah. We were looking at different things that occurred during the, the final week of Christ's earthly ministry prior to His uh, crucifixion and His resurrection. And today we're resuming our look at the book of Jeremiah. Now, if you're with us for the first time, let me give you a tiny bit of background related to the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah is one of the prophetic books of the Old Testament. The Old Testament ends with a whole series of prophetic books. You have books that are called major prophets, books that we tend to categorize as minor prophets. Typically, the reason that they're categorized as major or minor really has to do with the length of the book. And so the book of Jeremiah is one of the longer prophetic books of the Old Testament. Jeremiah was somebody who, as a young man, the Lord called to serve in prophetic ministry, and he protested that idea initially because he thought he was too young, he thought he wasn't a good speaker, things of that nature. The typical kind of excuses that we all probably give God at one point or another. But God used him to speak to the people of Judah for over 40 years. So Judah was the southern kingdom of Israel. And during that period of time, he preached and he proclaimed, and the majority of people that heard the message that he was proclaiming ignored it. So again, I, I've been thinking this all the way through our study of the book of Jeremiah, but could you imagine doing something like that for four decades and for during, you know, for that period of time for people to ignore what you're doing or to treat you poorly or disrespectfully? And we see that happening throughout the course of Jeremiah's ministry, but he was speaking the truth and he was telling the people about things that the Lord had on the horizon for the people of Judah. And in the portion of scripture that we're looking at today, we're going to see Jeremiah treated in a way that is both disrespectful and harmful, but in the midst of it, we're also going to see a great example of compassion. So if you would, take your Bibles and open up to Jeremiah chapter 38. We're in the later chapters of the book of Jeremiah, and for the next few weeks, we'll finish up our study of the book of Jeremiah. But as we look at Jeremiah 38, we're going to be looking at the first 13 verses, and we're going to be talking about this idea of letting compassion motivate our action. And this is what it says in Jeremiah chapter 38, starting with verse 1. It says this to us. Now Shephatiah, the son of Matan, Gedaliah, the son of Pashur, Jukal, the son of Shelemiah, and Pashur, the son of Malchijah, or excuse me, Malchiah, heard the words that Jeremiah was saying to all the people. Thus says the Lord, he who stays in this city shall die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. But he who goes out to the Chaldeans shall live. He shall have his life as a prize of war and live. Thus says the Lord, this city shall surely be given into the hand of the army of the king of Babylon and be taken. Then the official said to the king, let this man be put to death, for he is weakening the hands of the soldiers who are left in this city and the hands of all the people by speaking such words to them. For this man is not seeking the welfare of this people, but their harm. King Zedekiah said, behold, he is in your hands. 
for the king can do nothing against you. So they took Jeremiah and cast him into the cistern of Malchiah, the king's son, which was in the court of the guard, letting Jeremiah down by ropes. And there was no water in the cistern, but only mud. And Jeremiah sank in the mud. When Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, a eunuch who was in the king's house, heard that they had put Jeremiah into the cistern, the king was sitting in the Benjamin gate, Ebed-Melech went from the king's house and said to the king, My lord the king, these men have done evil in all that they did to Jeremiah the prophet by casting him into the cistern, and he will die there of hunger, for there is no bread left in the city. Then the king commanded Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian, Take thirty men with you from here, and lift Jeremiah the prophet out of the cistern before he dies. So Ebed-Melech took the men with him, and went to the house of the king to a wardrobe in the storehouse, and took from there old rags and worn-out clothes, which he let down to Jeremiah in the cistern by ropes. Then Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian said to Jeremiah, Put the rags and clothes between your armpits and the ropes. Jeremiah did so. Then they drew Jeremiah up with ropes and lifted him out of the cistern, and Jeremiah remained in the court of the guard. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that as we take a look at this portion of Scripture this morning, that you would speak to our hearts, that you'd help us to understand more about who you are and how you work in the lives of your people. We thank you, Lord, for the example of compassion that we can see as we look at this chapter today. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us a greater glimpse of the compassion that was shown to us in your Son, Jesus Christ, as we look at an example of it from this passage in Jeremiah's book. Lord, we're grateful for this, we're grateful for what you've revealed to us, and we're grateful for the privilege to be able to carve out time this morning to worship you. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. A few years ago, uh, I had a conversation with a friend, and what we were talking about was our opinions related to help, you know, related to um, specifically how we thought we could help impoverished nations or what the best way to help impoverished nations might be. And we debated ideas. We debated, you know, ways that churches could be involved in that, ways that we as individuals could be involved with that. And we discovered that we didn't necessarily agree on our approach, but the one aspect of our approach that we did agree on was on the necessity of showing others compassion when they need to be shown compassion. The other day I saw an interesting video, and if if we're connected on Facebook, you probably saw that I posted a link to this. But I saw a video of Christians who live in South Korea who were taking plastic water bottles, so just the typical plastic water bottles, a little bit bigger than the the, uh, standard size, and they were filling these bottles with rice, and they were throwing them into the sea in such a way that they hoped that they would wash up on the beaches of North Korea and would feed the impoverished people that live there. The amount of rice in one of those bottles, apparently, was the amount of rice that uh, somebody living in in North Korea, it would take them more than a month to actually be able to work and earn because of the extreme poverty that's there. And in addition to the rice, they were taking plastic lunch bags and they were putting what looked like, uh, I think it was It was a copy of the Bible. I think it was just a copy of the New Testament, to be honest with you, by the size. They were putting copies of the New Testament 
in plastic lunch bags, folding that over, and then taping it to the bottle. And they even put USB drives that had some current TV shows uh, in there as well, because none of these things are accessible to the people of North Korea. And in fact, religion in general, unless you worship their you know, political leaders, is outlawed. And so people aren't allowed to freely and openly worship Christ. And so they were taking these bottles of rice with Bibles and USB drives taped to them, and filling them up, and then throwing them into the sea, hoping that it reached the people living in North Korea. I thought that was a great example of compassion. And when you look throughout the Scriptures, compassion is something that the Lord inspires within His people, and He encourages us to be active in practicing compassion toward others. And when the Lord fosters a sense of compassion within your heart, and He starts doing this within you, how do you respond to that prompting that he gives you. When he's prompting you to be compassionate towards somebody else, how do you respond to that nudge or to that prompting? I think sometimes what we can be tempted to do is to contemplate it for a while, to just think about it for a while until that impression or that urge goes away. But the other way that we can respond to it is to take action. And the portion of Scripture that we're looking at today is a portion of Scripture that I think reminds us that Christ-centered compassion results in action being taken on behalf of somebody else. And as we look at this portion of Scripture today, there's a couple questions that I think it invites us to ask. And the first one is kind of like a setup question. It's not necessarily directed toward compassion, but it sets up what's happening in this passage that leads to an act of compassion being shown toward Jeremiah. And the first question is this, Do you fear being mistreated for speaking the truth? This is a question I want us to ask as we start our look at this passage. Do you fear being mistreated for speaking the truth? Let me reread verses 4 to 6. They say this, Then the official said to the king, Let this man be put to death, for he is weakening the hands of the soldiers who are left in this city, and the hands of all the people by speaking such words to them. For this man is not seeking the welfare of this people, but their harm. King Zedekiah said, Behold, he is in your hands, for the king can do nothing against you. So they took Jeremiah and cast him into the cistern of Malchiah, the king's son, which was in the court of the guard, letting Jeremiah down by ropes. And there was no water in the cistern, but only mud. And Jeremiah sank in the mud. So during the years of Jeremiah's ministry to the people of Judah, we see example after example, time and time again, Jeremiah spoke the truth that the Lord revealed to him. The Lord would reveal truth to Jeremiah prophetically, and Jeremiah would communicate that truth accurately, reliably, consistently to the people of Judah. He made it known to common people. He also made it known to royalty without hesitation to do so. And again, as we've noticed in the the few months that we've been looking at this book, very few people responded positively to what Jeremiah happened to say. And as we we can see from this passage here, uh, the message he communicated irritated others to such a degree that they began plotting to take his life. So they actually want to see him dead. Not just silenced in a polite way, they want to see him dead. They hated him that much. That's the epitome of hate. If you want to see somebody not just quiet but dead, you hate them. Jeremiah was hated during the time in which he lived. And interestingly, 
when, when you look at a portion of Scripture like this, it, it, you know, particularly if you've read through the New Testament as well, this is the same kind of experience that Jesus endured when He ministered on the earth. When Christ was here during the course of His earthly ministry, He was treated the same kind of way. We, we see Christ sharing the truth of His identity. We see Christ sharing the details of His offer of salvation. But how was Christ treated? He was rejected. He was threatened, and he was ultimately crucified because the people understood that he was saying, I'm God right here in the flesh. In fact, in John chapter 10, verse 31 down to verse 33, it gives us this example from Christ's ministry. It says, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? Don't you love, by the way, the wise guy answers that Jesus would give these people? You know, the religious leaders always had to deal with him one-upping them with his wise guy comments. And I always find it entertaining. But he says, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered him, it's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. So what were they most upset with Christ over? Verbally, at least, they say it's because he was committing blasphemy. We know that their motives were jealousy because Jesus was amassing a following that was kind of competing with the following that they were trying to amass. But Jesus spoke the truth. He told people that he was God. He told people his offer of salvation. He confronted sin, and he was hated because of it. And in Jeremiah's case, as we look here in Jeremiah 38... In his context here, the people throw Jeremiah into a cistern and they leave him to die. Now, at the time that the events are recorded here in this passage uh, from Jeremiah's book, Judah was in an interesting spot. The southern kingdom of Israel, which consisted of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, typically just referred to as Judah, is in a very interesting spot because you had the Babylonians, the world power, the major world power at that time, um, threatening to take them into captivity. We see this happening throughout the book of uh, Jeremiah. So the people of Judah are fearful of the Babylonians. The Babylonians eventually do take them into captivity. And that happens to be under the Lord's direction because the Lord wanted the people taken into captivity for a period of time. And so the Lord was encouraging the people through Jeremiah to actually cooperate with this captivity because it was God's will. He was going to use it to purify them and uh, steal their opportunity to be worshiping idols like they once were. Uh, so the Lord was going to use this captivity as a purifying event for the people of Judah and then allow them to return to the land. And the Lord revealed through Jeremiah that those who cooperated with this captivity, those who allowed themselves to be taken into captivity into Babylon, which sounds very difficult, I imagine, for any of us to imagine allowing ourselves to be willing to do. But the Lord said through Jeremiah, if you cooperate, you'll live. If you cooperate with this captivity, you'll live. And if you reject the prophetic message that Jeremiah is speaking, and you remain in Jerusalem, and you fight against the Babylonians, you'll die. And the Lord revealed through Jeremiah that they would die, the people would die in a variety of ways. Some would die from war, some would die from famine, some would die from disease. 
But this passage tells us that certain officials during this time who wanted to fight against the Babylonians, they despised Jeremiah and they despised his message because they feared that it was weakening the resolve of the soldiers of Judah and weakening the resolve of the people of Judah. And because of this, they come before the king and they request permission of the king to eradicate Jeremiah. And we're told here that when they were granted that permission, that they took Jeremiah and they lowered him into a cistern that was full of mud with the thought that, you know, just go be in this cistern and die. Just die, Jeremiah, right? Now, if you're not familiar with a cistern, a cistern is this, and this isn't the only time in Scripture where someone gets lowered into one. Um, but here, you, you, you have Jeremiah lowered into a cistern. A cistern was an underground reservoir. So they were used to collect rainwater. A lot of times they were carved out of rock. And, and they'd have like a small opening at the top and a wider base as you got down into it. And it was used to collect rainwater and to be a reserve of, of, you know, drinking water or water that you could use for a variety of reasons. And you would have cisterns from place to place in spots that were sometimes useful for collecting rainwater when it would run. These things are dug out of rock. It's the type of thing that if you were lowered into, you would not easily be able to get out by yourself, particularly in this case, if it had become filled with mud, because there's no way you're going to be able to get traction on a wall. There's no way you're really going to be able to move easily. And this was the circumstance that Jeremiah found himself in. So he was left to die. He was put in a, in a context where, naturally speaking, he certainly would have died. And the reality of what we're being shown here even before we look at how this passage plays out, is that there can be real-life consequences. And I want us to remember this because I want us to be people who speak the truth, but this, this shows us that there can and sometimes are real-life consequences for speaking the truth, particularly when you're telling others the Word of God and they don't really want to hear it. And that's something that I imagine that many of us are quite aware of, but maybe some of us are still wrestling with that thought a little bit. And that being the case, would you say that the, the potential ramifications of openly and honestly sharing the Word of God, sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, because of those ramifications, have you ever found yourself hesitant to share or hesitant to speak the truth because you knew that there could be a consequence that came from it. And in fact, when we look at this particular example, we see that oftentimes there are consequences for speaking the truth. And when we look at the ministry of Christ, we see that he experienced consequences for speaking the truth. And in fact, Jesus told us, don't expect to be treated any better than I was treated in this world. If it's my expectation or your expectation that somehow the world's going to applaud us for telling them what they, they don't want to hear, that's not realistic, and it's not what the Scripture actually tells us. In fact, in our culture, there could be consequences for speaking the truth. Now, as I think about some of the consequences that I've dealt with, I have to admit that most of the consequences that I've dealt with, at least so far in this season of my life, uh, tend to relate to things that I would put under the categories of criticism, so sometimes you get criticism. I'll never forget a, a particular time uh, years ago when I was sharing um, just a little bit. It wasn't even a lot about my faith, just a little bit about my faith. And uh, hurtfully, I had to watch someone just kind of, you know, just 
act dismissive and make a face about it, you know, in a way that, that was kind of like, you're an idiot and uh, you don't know what you're talking about kind of face. And uh, I remember at the time, for whatever reason, uh, I think partly because of who it came from, I remember feeling pretty hurt by it and thinking, okay, um, that's hurtful. But I think the Lord wanted me to have that experience because I've honestly spent more than 20 years praying for that person. And I think I had to have that experience so that my heart would be prompted to spend several decades praying for the same person. I don't think if I was uh, unhurt in that moment, I would necessarily think to pray for him uh, with as much regularity uh, as I do. I'll even say this as an aside. Um, there's a, a place that this friend used to work at, and every time I drive by that place, it always prompts me to pray for him, pray for his wife, pray for his kids. Uh, I always think to pray for his family. And I've actually, start, in car rides, I've actually asked my family, it's like, hey, pray for my friend so-and-so. Um, he used to work there, and every time I, I, I drive past there, I always pray for his salvation. I always pray that he would come to know Jesus someday. I pray for his wife, pray for his kids. Join me in praying. That's why I pause the radio in those moments, and that's why I stop talking. I'm actually praying for my friend. And uh, so now they know when we drive by there. Uh, that that's who we're praying for. But sometimes the worst consequences we deal with truthfully in our culture are like hurt feelings or maybe some criticism. And I don't like that stuff, but to be honest with you, no one's ever threatened to take my life. Yet, <laughs> you know, could happen, right? So I'm just going to put the yet in there. Um, but the truth is there are believers right now throughout the world whose lives are threatened, and yet they still boldly proclaim the message of the gospel. And so I look at a portion of Scripture like this, and one of the things that it just invites me, I guess, to ask myself, and I want to pose it to us as a congregation, do you fear being mistreated for speaking the truth? The answer, if we're all really honest, is probably yes, at least to a degree. I don't like it, you don't like it, but that shouldn't prevent us from actually doing it, Right? And here you have Jeremiah clearly mistreated, his life threatened for speaking the truth. But the Scripture goes on. The Scripture here invites us to ask another question, and that's this. Who do you make intercession on behalf of? Look at verses 7 to 10. It says this. When Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian, a eunuch who was in the king's house, heard that they had put Jeremiah into the cistern, the king was sitting in the Benjamin gate, Ebed-Melech went from the king's house and said to the king, My lord the king, these men have done evil in all that they did to Jeremiah the prophet by casting him into the cistern, and he will die there of hunger, for there is no bread left in the city. Then the king commanded Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian, Take thirty men with you from, the, from here, and lift Jeremiah the prophet out of the cistern before he dies. Let's pause there. When the Lord called Jeremiah into ministry, sometime before this, when Jeremiah was a young man, he also promised to protect Jeremiah. He also promised to deliver Jeremiah. In fact, let me just show you real quick. Jeremiah 1, verses 7 to 8 say this, But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I am only a youth. So this is when Jeremiah is giving God his excuses. And the Lord says, Don't, don't say to me, or do not say to me, I am only a youth. For to all to whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. That's what he said to Jeremiah. Don't be afraid. Just say what I've told you to say. Yes, I'm not promising you everyone's going to react favorably, but just say it. Just tell people what I want you to say. Be the one person 
in their life that will actually speak the truth that they need to hear. And so I'm sure that throughout the course of Jeremiah's life, that his faith in that promise was probably tested probably multiple times. But the Lord always kept his word. And as he promised, he protected Jeremiah until the time of Jeremiah uh, was done. And it was the Lord's timing for, for Jeremiah to go and to be with him. And Jeremiah did die kind of a, a, a brutal death. But at that point, it was the Lord's time to take him to be with him. And at this point, it was Jeremiah's uh, mission to still remain as the Lord communicated it. And in this context, you have uh, news beginning to spread of what's been done to Jeremiah, the fact that he's been thrown into this cistern. And the Scripture tells us about a man, an Ethiopian eunuch, who really stands out to us in the book of Jeremiah because there aren't too many people who have reacted with kindness toward Jeremiah. But here in this portion of Scripture, we see someone finally do so. And it says an Ethiopian eunuch named Ebed-Melech, a guy who served in the king's house. He received the news about what had happened to Jeremiah, and he responded to it. Specifically, his response was to seek an audience with the king to express his displeasure with the evil that had been done to Jeremiah and to seek permission from the king to actually do something about what had taken place. And so I could only imagine what King Zedekiah's personality was like. I don't know specifically. We get some hints and some inferences from looking at this book. But King Zedekiah probably had a unique personality. He seems uh, like he had kind of an interesting leadership style as well. In fact, in this chapter, he seems more than happy not to be bothered with Jeremiah. Meaning, you know, his actions seem to say, look, if you want to kill Jeremiah and you ask me permission to kill him, I'll tell you yes. And if you want Jeremiah to live and you ask me permission to rescue him, I'll tell you yes. Just don't really bother me with it, right? Here, these 30 guys, you go with Ebed-Melech, get out of my hair. You want to kill him? Fine. You want to save him? Fine. That's what it seems to me when I read this passage of Scripture. So Ebed-Melech was given 30 guys to go and lift Jeremiah out. It's just interesting because in a few verses prior to this, what do you have uh, Zedekiah doing? He's giving permission to the officials to put him in there. So he gives permission to put him in there and permission now to yank him out. And it's basically whatever anyone asks related to Jeremiah, he's like, fine, whatever. I don't care. You know, all I want to do is just live my kingly life and worry about the Babylonians. But I believe when you look at this portion of Scripture, I believe the, you have an example here or a demonstration of the Lord putting something on someone's heart. I believe the Lord put it on Ebed-Melech's heart to intervene and to intercede on behalf of Jeremiah. I want us to make this personal to us as well as we look at this, but have you ever considered the fact that the Lord has also given us the privilege to intercede on behalf of one another in prayer toward Him? In fact, His Word directs us to specifically do that very thing. Look at what it tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. It says, first of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. That's what the Scripture tells us. The Lord directs us to come before His throne and to joyfully pray for the well-being of all people. 
of all the kinds of people that the Lord places in your life, even, imagine this, even the kings, even the political leaders that we may not particularly think well of or agree with. Could you imagine? Now, I don't know how everyone votes. Wouldn't that be an interesting experiment experiment to find out? We're not going to test that. I actually don't want to know. <laughs> Probably be the best because those that vote one way in the church would be like, oh, I always, always, I always thought so well of that person until I found out how they voted, right? Let's just not tell each other, right? Let's live in blissful ignorance. But could you imagine, you know, there's going to be seasons in your life where you have political leaders that you love. And it's easy to pray for political leaders that you love. And there's going to be seasons of your life where you have political leaders that you really cannot stand. It's not as easy to pray unless you're sometimes praying like, Lord, please strike that person like just like with lightning or something. You know, can you do that? Don't pray that way. All right. Pray for God's grace. Pray for God's mercy. Pray for God's wisdom and blessing to be upon those that have the opportunity to lead, no matter what you tend to think of them. But the idea is pray for all people. Pray for your friends from high school. Pray for people that... Do you ever go through Facebook? I I check Facebook every day. And when you're going through Facebook, do you ever just take the time to just pray for whoever comes up in your feed? I like doing that from time to time. Sometimes I'll even just put that out there. If there's something specific you want prayer for, put it out here and we'll pray for you as a group. You ever just take time... You know, the Scripture tells us pray for everybody. Right? Pray for people in high position. Pray for people in low position. You ever pray for someone you don't even know? Pray for people you don't even know. People you just see walking on the street. People that walk in front of you. Somebody that you can tell is having a difficult time because of the countenance on their face or the way that they're carrying themselves or the context in which they're sitting or the fact, I have to tell you, one of the things that happens a lot here, I always think, you know, we're right across the street from a hospital. And every day when I'm working here in the office, I always hear ambulances go by. At least three or four times a day, I'll hear the sirens. And I always think to myself, somebody's having probably the worst day of their life right now. They're being rushed to the hospital and the siren is being used. It's urgent. They're probably having the worst day of their life. They may be having the last day of their life. And so the Lord's placed it on my heart to be praying for whoever is in that ambulance and their family. I can honestly say that I do that as those things are going by, because they're going by. I hear it all the time, right outside the window, always going by. Three or four times a day, I'll hear that siren as people are being rushed to the hospital. Pray for people you don't even know, because the Lord's also inspiring people to be praying for you. He's got His agents. He's got believers who know Him and love Him and love you, and are praying for you. Do you ever have someone reveal to you that they've been praying for you and they don't even know why, but the Lord's placed it on their heart? I remember I got a message. This is in the spring of 2008. So it was right around this time, exactly 10 years ago, from someone that it had been at least a decade, possibly more, since I had seen or talked to this guy. And completely out of the blue, he reached out to me. And he said, um, he said, I don't know why, I'm just going to let you know what's on my mind today. For whatever reason, all day long, the Lord's been impressing upon my heart that I need to be praying for you. So I don't know if you're going through something. I don't know if you're in the midst of a trial. I don't know what's happening in your life right now. But I just want to let you know that whatever it is, I'm praying for you about it. And uh, if you want to tell me what it is, that's fine. But I can't shake the fact that the Lord's telling me to be praying for you today. And as crazy as this sounds... That was the day that I was meeting with a mission board to present the idea to them of planting Core Creek Community Church as Newtown Community Church was in the process of shutting down. 
And so I was meeting with them that afternoon to present the idea to them, to ask for their blessing, to ask for their permission, to ask for their support. And early in the day, I get that message from someone I haven't even talked to in over 10 years. He said, I don't know what's going on, but I can't shake the fact that the Lord's telling me to pray for you today. And I remember thinking to myself, I'm like, wow! It felt good to know that somebody would care enough to lift up my concerns or my needs before the Lord in prayer. That someone was interceding before the Lord on my behalf. Someone that I don't see. Someone now it's at this point now I haven't seen this guy in over 20 years. But he felt led to pray and he was obedient to the Lord's nudge to intercede on my behalf. And the Lord answers the answered those prayers and I just want to say this. Who is the Lord placing on your heart to pray for? I mean, if we're convinced that prayer is God's ordained means for us to be able to access His divine power on our behalf and on behalf of those that we care about, who are you saying yes to the Lord in regard to when He asks you to be praying for them? Who has He been placing upon your heart to be lifting up in prayer? Who's He leading you to intercede for? Someone you know right now, maybe several someones that you know right now, are in the midst of being stuck in a pit of something that they don't know how to get out of, nor can they get out of it in their own strength. They need divine intervention. When we look at a portion of Scripture like this, we could look at it and just kind of look at it on the surface and not think about the deeper things that it illustrates, or we could look at this and say, wait a second, this is a great example of what it looks like to intercede on behalf of somebody else. Will you be the one who brings their need before the throne of God, lifting them up in prayer like Ebed-Melech was willing to come before the king in his context on behalf of Jeremiah? Who do you make intercession on behalf of? And I'll also tell you this, it doesn't hurt to let people know that you've been praying for them. It's one of the most encouraging things for another believer in, per, in, in particular to hear, but even unbelievers in my life have actually thanked me for praying for them, which reminds me, you know what, even though I, I'm not even 100% certain they believe in the power of prayer, I think sometimes I should at least let them know that I'm lifting them up in prayer. Encourage someone with the knowledge that you're praying for them. Let them know. Here you have Ebed-Melech interceding, making intercession on behalf of Jeremiah. There's one other thing that I think this Scripture invites us to ask, and that's this. Are you the type of person who would bother to lift somebody else up? Would you bother? Look at what it says in verse 11 down to verse 13. It says, So Ebed-Melech took the men with him and went to the house of the king to a wardrobe in the storehouse. Don't you like all the details here? You know, they went to a wardrobe in the storehouse and took from there old rags and worn-out clothes, which he let down to Jeremiah in the cistern by ropes. And then Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian said to Jeremiah, put the rags and clothes between your armpits and the ropes. Why do you think it's telling us these details? I have a theory I'll share in a minute. It says, put the rags and clothes between your armpits and the ropes. Jeremiah did so. Then they drew Jeremiah up with ropes and lifted him out of the cistern, and Jeremiah remained in the court of the guard. So 
you know, we're looking at this portion of Scripture, we're seeing the different people involved, but one of the people it keeps emphasizing is this man, Ebed-Melech, and it appears, when we look at this portion of Scripture, it appears that he was the kind of man who let compassion motivate him to take action. So after interceding on behalf of Jeremiah to the king, he takes this group of men that the king assigned to him, and they went and they work on their plan to remove Jeremiah from this cistern. And we're told here again that they grabbed some old rags, they grabbed some worn-out clothing, and they sent this fabric down to Jeremiah along with the ropes. Now again, why is it telling us about this extra rags and clothing? Why does it just say they lowered down a rope and lifted Jeremiah out? Why is it going into this kind of detail? My theory is this, that we're shown in this particular context that Ebed-Melech put some extra thought, some extra effort into the well-being of Jeremiah by encouraging him to use the the rags, to use these these old pieces of clothing to to lessen the pain and the abrasion of the ropes by placing these things under his armpits as they're lifting them up. It just shows some extra thought and extra compassion, some detail to thought This isn't a callous act. He's actually trying to help the guy out. and He's also thinking about his comfort, and he's saying, this rope is going to hurt this man if I just try and yank him up with it just straight under his arms. And who knows how Jeremiah was even dressed. He may have even just been disrobed when he was thrown down there. doesn't tell us every last detail of that. So maybe he's thinking, listen, we got to have something in between. I was joking with my kids. I said, kids, you're going to get to hear me use a word on Sunday that I don't know if I've ever used when I was preaching. I said, somewhere in my sermon on Sunday, I'm going to be using the word armpit. And uh, we thought that was funny because we're twisted people. But here, here you have Ebed-Melech saying, look, put this under your arm. Put it in your armpits. You know, put like, just get, get it in there like that and then put the rope around you. Otherwise, it's going to hurt you. I don't want to, I don't want to hurt you. I don't want to needlessly hurt you in this context. And so he put some extra thought into this. And can you just imagine being Jeremiah in this context? I imagine Jeremiah was quite relieved to see these men, quite relieved to experience their help, You know, particularly after being treated so poorly by the officials that wanted to kill him and the officials that tried to, you know, that did succeed in throwing him in there. And again, we don't know a little bit about, or we don't know a lot about Ebed-Melech, but again, the, the limited information that we're given about him in this portion of Scripture, it leads me to believe that he was the kind of man who would listen to the Lord's voice when the Lord instructed him to show compassion toward others. It appears that he was a, the kind of man who was not ashamed to associate with those who were in low positions. He did not consider it beneath himself to lift somebody else up. Now, let me say this as we finish up. As men and women who are seeking to grow mature in our walk with Christ, and I hope that that's the desire of our hearts, that we would grow mature in our walk with Christ, there's a lesson for us in this passage. And it's a lesson that's spoken elsewhere in Scripture as well. It's actually one of the themes of Scripture. We're called to be builders of people, not destroyers of people called to build one another up, not destroy one another, right? Not to destroy lives, but to build lives for Christ's glory. Consider for just a moment, I don't have slides for these things, I just want to quote four places in Scripture that illustrate this for us, that tell us the nature of what it looks like and why the Lord calls us to build one another up. First is 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 11, where it says this, Therefore, 
encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, it says this, And let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. In Romans chapter 14, verse 19, it says this, So let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. And in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 26, it says this, What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. You know, in that context, saying, even in the context of when you gather for worship, be intentional, yes, about worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ, and likewise be intentional about building your brothers and sisters in Christ up. That's why one of the reasons why I just love gathering together on a Sunday morning, starting off our week, worshiping Christ and building one another up. I look forward to this time. I hope you look forward to Sunday morning as well. I suspect that you probably do because no one made you to be here, right? No one forced you to be here. Uh, some of the kids are like, I don't know about that, Pastor. Um, but I'll... <laughs> Those of you that, that came here of your own volition, right? No one forced you to be here. Why do we enjoy gathering together? Well, it's joyful to sing songs of praise to Jesus Christ. It's joyful to meditate on the truth of His Word. It's likewise joyful to be built up by our brothers and sisters in Christ. So we gather together. We start off our week like this. The Lord tells us, don't neglect doing that. It's easy to get in the habit of neglecting that. Don't neglect it. Make it part of your life. That's what the instruction to the early church was. It's the instruction to us as well. I want to read to you something here. I love reading historical narratives about different people that were uh, prominent in, in forms of leadership. Particularly, I love reading about past presidents. And uh, Abraham Lincoln is somebody that I really do admire. I have an awesome book. I'd encourage you to read it sometime. It's called Lincoln on Leadership. If you ever see that book, it's very easy to find. It's become somewhat popular. But it's leadership lessons that you can learn and observe from Lincoln's life, and he led with a humble form of leadership, but also a decisive form of leadership and a compassionate form of leadership. And I don't want to paraphrase this. I just want to read to you something brief that I came across recently that impacted me. It says this, Despite his busy schedule during the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln often visited the hospitals to cheer the wounded. On one occasion, he saw a young fellow who was near death. Is there anything I can do for you? asked the compassionate president. Please write a letter to my mother, came the reply. Lincoln was unrecognized by the soldier, but he sat down and he wrote as the youth told him what to say. And the letter read this. It said, My dearest mother, I was badly hurt while doing my duty, and I won't recover. Don't sorrow too much for me. May God bless you and Father. Kiss Mary and John from me. Then the young man was too weak to go on, so Lincoln signed the letter for him and then added this postscript, written for your son by Abraham Lincoln. Asking to see the note, the soldier was astonished to discover who had shown him such kindness. Are you really our president, he asked. Yes, was the quiet answer. Now, is there anything else I can do? 
And the lad feebly replied, Will you please hold my hand? I think it would help to see me through to the end. So the tall, gaunt president granted his request, offering warm words of encouragement until death stole in with the dawn. I liked reading that. It was a good reminder to me of the importance to show compassion, particularly when someone's in a tough spot. That's Christ's calling on His church. That's what He's done for us. That's His calling on, on His church. As He's lifted us up, I mean, just consider this. And it's such an apt description when you look at what took place in Jeremiah's life. He was thrown into this pit, sort of this cistern, thrown into this pit. He's filled with mud. He's left there to die. And the truth is, Christ lifted us up out of a pit. Think about the pit we were in. We were in a pit that was just, we were just covered in our own filth, right? We were covered in our own sin, covered in the muck of our, of our own shame and our despair and the condemnation that we aptly deserved. And Christ looked at us and with compassion elected to lift us up out of it. He would not have been wrong to leave us in it. We actually put ourselves in it. He didn't leave us there. He showed us compassion instead. He didn't leave us in that pit. And He calls us as men and women who have been made part of His family, men and women who have been rescued and redeemed through faith in Him, to reflect His compassionate heart with intentional action toward one another. And as we do that, it leads to growth. It leads to health. It leads to maturity within the body of Christ, within the Christian family. Christ showed us compassion, and for that reason, we gathered together to joyfully worship Him as a way of saying, thank you, Lord. I didn't deserve this, but thank you. I think we, as followers of Jesus Christ, should likewise let Christ-empowered compassion motivate our action. I think that as followers of Jesus Christ, we should look for opportunities to build one another up in Christ's name and for His glory, because that's the very thing He has done and is doing for us right now. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for Your Word. And thank You for the privilege to be able to look at it together and meditate on its content today and to just think about the things that You're illustrating for us from this example that we see in the book of Jeremiah, a portion of Scripture that I think can easily be overlooked. In some respects, it just looks like a portion of Scripture where Your prophet gets thrown into a cistern full of mud. And then we take a look at it a little bit deeper. And we see that you don't waste a word of Scripture. There's nothing in there that's just filler. The entirety of your word is meant to point us to your Son, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, as we look at a portion of Scripture like this, we see quite a few reminders, some very visible illustrations of what you've done for us in your Son. We were in a pit of our shame. We were in a pit of our sin. We had no capacity to get ourselves out of it. So you looked at us with compassion and you took action. 
through faith in your Son, Jesus Christ, were lifted up out of the pit of sin and shame and certain death. And we're restored. We are rescued. We're given life where we were certainly dead. Thank you, Lord, for the example of compassion that you've shown us. Thank you for the example of compassion that we see Ebed-Melech showing Jeremiah in this portion of Scripture. And likewise, Lord, as people who are grateful for your acts of compassion toward us, we pray that we would be compassionate toward others, that the Christ-empowered compassion that you have that you have given to us would be something that we would make use of, something that we would value. Lord, we're grateful again for the privilege to be able to meditate on these things today. And Lord, we don't know what today is going to bring. We don't know what this week will bring. There will be somebody that you put across our path that we should be praying for, somebody that you put across our path that we should be intentionally seeking to lift up and edify for your glory and in your name. Help us, Lord, we pray, to be very obedient to you when you burden our hearts to do so. Help us not to get too busy to care about the needs of somebody else. Help us to glorify you as we serve one another for your glory and in your name. Thank you again, Lord, for this reminder from your word today. We commit ourselves to your care. We thank you for it. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.